Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Sure good to see everyone that is here this evening. Grateful for the chance that our God has given us to go through the day and to be as safe and to be as prosperous as we have, as well as being able to come together to think in terms of what the book of, excuse me, the book of Psalm, I'll get it right in just a minute, Romans chapter 12, and looking at verse 6 through verse 21 says, the heat has just got to me, I guess is what it is, I don't know. Before I get into this, I, want, I must tell you that I appreciate very, very much uh, by the elders' invitation to come and be with you in the few days that we were together. Appreciate very much all of the kindnesses that you've shown to us from the beginning of our time together. We walk into the motel room, and there's this big basket about as big as this pulpit stand full of goodies. And the most interesting thing about that is it has all of the things in it that we like. Now, somebody's been talking, and I don't know who it is, but I'm glad they did because all those things are very, very appreciative. And we appreciate very much the opportunity, more so than anything, to be with you this week. We have greatly uh, have appreciated just your spirituality and your faithfulness and love for God and the songs that have been sung the efforts been put forth in trying to blend those songs and what we're talking about, the prayers that have been offered, and the generosity and those of you that have invited us to be with you at some other point in time during the week. I can only say thank you uh, from my, the bottom of my heart. My sweetie, is uh, we are very grateful for that. I do know that one of the great endeavors, besides making sure that I preach and teach the Scripture, is that you get to know my wife very well, and by the time that I'm done, you appreciate the fact that she was here more than you appreciate the fact that I'm here. And she is uh, just a wonderful, uh, I say, blessing to what it is that we both do together in the preaching of the gospel. Appreciate the fact that we could be with all of you very, very much. And again, with Reagan and Stephanie, are very, very valuable friends of ours from many days gone by, and I know you appreciate them very much. The elders here, I want, I want to just say something to you and to your wives. Thank you for what service you render to the kingdom of God. And uh, I know what you do. I know what you do. Shepherding is a valuable means of serving the congregation. As a result, you, you bestow that blessing of serving as a shepherd on to the members that are here, whether they're deacons, teachers, or whoever. And I do know the value of what you do, and it is absolutely appreciated by myself. Whether or not others do, I, I, I just adore what you do. It is just absolutely wonderful. Let, let's get into, oh, I, there's a comment that was made. I, I got to realize I've been here, I don't know if you call it long enough or too long. When somebody comes up and says, well, is this going to be a long sermon? That's the question I get. And I'm not going to say any names, but I'll talk to this person after we're done. And we'll, we'll compare notes and see. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 12. We have endeavored to look very carefully at the first five verses of this chapter to talk about the means of trans, being transformed, the identity of that being in this world. 
And while we think about that, there's, there's one word that I want you to think about with me, and that is once all these things that are stated in verse 1 to verse 5 are put in their place of you having been given the invitation, also you've been willing to, by the mercies of God, to sacrifice yourself in verse 1, and then you find yourself not conforming to the world in verse 2, renew your mind, and you want to prove what is the good will of God, and then you see the assignment that we talked about last night in verse 3 to verse 5. But the question usually comes up is the how. What, in other words, the how that comes right after that says, what is it now that I'm supposed to demonstrate this transformation? And here's where we go. Verse 6. And having gifts differing according to the grace that was given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of our faith. Or ministry, let us give ourselves to ministry. Or he that teaches to his teaching. Or he that exhorteth to his exhorting. He that gives, let him do it with liberality. He that rules, doing so with diligence. He that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. And love of the brethren tenderly affectioned one to another, in honor preferring one another. In diligence, not slothful, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, communicating to the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality, bless them that persecute you, bless and curse not, rejoice with them that rejoice, Weep within that weep. Be of the same mind, one toward another. Set not your mind on high things, but condescend to things that are lowly. Be not wise in your own conceits. Render to no man evil for evil. Take thought for things honorable in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as in you lies, be at peace with all men. Avenge not yourselves, beloved, but give place unto the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance belongs unto me. I will recompense, says the Lord. But if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him a drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. And I, I can't give you the reason as to why Paul put this list for these people, I could summarize so many different angles on this. There is something that I want you to look at with me, though, and that is the statement that was made by Paul to Timothy, as we talked about last night, in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 4, that will help us understand a little bit of a, maybe a basis for why it is that we can look at these things and at the same time apply them and not forget them. First Timothy chapter 4, Paul says to Timothy, verse 14, Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Be diligent in these things, giving thyself wholly to them, that thy progress may be manifest to all. Take heed of thyself and to thy teaching. Continue in these things, for in doing this thou shalt save both thyself and them that hear thee. Paul is giving this information to Timothy 
knowing that he's received something from God by the hands of the presbytery in verse 14. And it's not so much that you take that and, and, and brag about it and boast about it and say, I've got something you don't have. The responsibility now, once you receive this assignment, like we're talking about in Romans chapter 12, is you give yourself wholly to them so that progress may be manifest. And that's what we ended with a little bit last night in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. That was one of the prayers that Paul offered for the brethren that he witnessed their progress, all because of the knowledge of faith, of Scripture. And then he, he emphasizes the value of this. So th- there's something to be said for realizing when you look at what verse 16 says, there's a dual benefit. Two, being transformed. One is it saves you. You're saved. But when you go out into the world, what value is that going to mean to them? Well, it's helping teach and save them that hear what you've got to say. As well as what you do. Therefore, you can go out and teach somebody the gospel, lead them to the point of transformation, but there's a very good time of which they're going to look and see what you're going to do first. It's like what I said last night. They'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day, and as a result of that, that is an intriguing thing. We'll talk a little bit more about that in some of these points that we make here in the book of Romans chapter 12, verse 6 to verse 21. We're not going to cover all of those. We're going to cover maybe about a half of them, and Lord willing, we'll talk about the rest of them tomorrow night. I do realize that when you get to the last chapter of the book of Romans, why would this be so important that they would be people, once you get through chapter 1 through 11, understand the means of salvation in the midst of what the Gentiles did, what the Jews did, everybody's in sin, comes for the glory of God, then you see the need for faith, grace, obedience, no matter of how it is that we need to remove ourselves from the old law, come into the new law, abide by that because there is no condemnation for those that follow Jesus Christ, Romans 8, verse 1. And then when you get to chapter 12, what's the point of all these things he mentions here? Notice in the book of Romans chapter 16, something very interesting to me. In verse 14, I myself also am persuaded of you, brethren, that ye yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. I must tell you something about that verse. That will be the exact mindset that I will have and Diane I will have when we leave you, Lord willing, tomorrow night. I'll have that same thought of this very thing. But he says, I'm writing the more boldly to you in some measure as putting you again in remembrance because of the grace of God that was given me by God. And that same phraseology is the same thing that you will see in the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 3. By the grace of God, they received this as a measure of faith. That I should be a minister of Christ Jesus under the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be made acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The conversion of the Gentiles, as well as the Jews, not to be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind, is something of which he is praying for that will be continuing in their life. Therefore, as a result of that, you're getting into all these things that are listed here in the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 6 to verse 21. All these things kind of tie in together. And one of the first things he talks about in this list here is the idea of prophecy. 
being the messenger, being that mouthpiece of God's revelation. But he goes further. He says, how about ministering, serving in an area where God needs you? And I can't just say, okay, he needs you just over here with these young people. He needs you over here with these older people. He needs you over there down by the lower parts of the city where there are people that are homeless and don't have anything and anybody to call their friend. But it could be anywhere. And then the matter of teaching, just instructing God's grace to other people. And then he goes on further and talks about exhorting. And usually you would think of that as someone like Barnabas in the book of Acts chapter 11, verse 23, that when he was, had witnessed all those people that were in Antioch that were converted, then he encourages them more. It's not like, okay, once you're saved, you don't have to worry about anything else. You're saved and that's it. It's a matter of the salvation of which was witnessed in them. He said, I want you to cleave to the Lord. One of the most interesting things you'll see in Hebrews chapter 3 is a very significant phrase of which the Hebrew writer says about how valuable it is to be exhorted by other people. Where it says in verse 12, Take heed, brethren, lest happily there might be any one of you an evil heart of unbelief and falling away from the living God. Why would it be so important that there would be people exhorting each other? Why would that be so valuable in the means of a transformed individual? Because there are people that need to be encouraged not to go back to where they were or at least be ticked by something else that will cause them to fall away. Verse 13, exhort one another day by day so long as it's called today, lest anyone of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Makes perfect sense as to why he would use the idea of exhortation. But it goes further and talks about the idea of giving. Sharing what it is that you have with other people. It's not to be kept for yourself. According to what you see in Scripture in the book of 1 John chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, he talks about all those worldly goods that you've got. And he says, Whoever has this world's goods and beholds his brother in need and shuts up his compassion from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Verse 18, my little children, let us not love in word, neither with a tongue, but indeed in truth. And you see that value. But one of the most interesting things about giving and sharing with anybody at any time has a lot to do with what you do first. And by the scriptures in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5, the reason these people in Corinth or in, to say in other places, were doing what they were doing in Macedonia to the needs of other people is because they first gave themselves to the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean you may not give because you haven't given yourself first to the Lord. You could give anyway. But for the person that's transformed to be different than everybody else in the world, their identity is going to be giving and sharing with what they have to others because of the fact that they've been given mercy by God to be a child of God and they don't mind and want to give to other people. They're, they're ready to. You just ask them and they're ready to go. Then we go a little bit further we talk about this one. In the scriptures of which you see here in the book of Romans chapter 12 he talks about this ruling or 
leading. Some versions even maybe use the word shepherd. It's a diligent effort with a lot of serious energy on the part of the individual to lead, let their life be led right by the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, as well as trying to lead others in the same direction. It's just like Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 and 13 we were talking about just a minute ago. And then we get to this one right here. In this list here, he's talking about showing mercy, loving and caring. And it's not because they deserve it. It's because they need it. It's because they need it. There are about, if you start at verse 6 and go all the way down to verse 21, there's about, depending on how you count them, it's between 20 to 30 different traits and different means of responsibility of those people that are transformed, that identify them different than the disoriented world in which we live. Therefore, when he comes along in verse 2 and he says, conform not to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, the tendency is to say, okay, well, what's the difference between me and my neighbor? What's the difference between me and the people I work with? What's the difference between me and everybody else in my family who doesn't believe God? What's the difference between me and the people I go to school with? What's going to be the difference? There are males, there are females. There's girls who go to school with me, boys go to school with me, men and women all over the country. What's the difference, though? And these are going to be the different traits. Some have even included that these seven in this list right here, three of them which talk about gifts of utterance with your speech, and four of them talk about the gift of assistance or the gift of service to other people, like ruling or exhorting, things of that nature. But so there's a lot to be said for understanding the value of this. And please know, you, you, when you see all these differences, it's kind of like what we talked about last night. These differences are blending together in a united body. And it's not competition. Neither one of these is competing with the other. They're both lending themselves to the body of Christ and its growth. And this is something of which Paul is hoping at the the end of the book in Romans chapter 16, that will be witnessed by them and it will be different than what they were before they ever became a Christian. And they will see the difference. And others will notice it too. So let's just think about a little image here before we get into the remainder of this, beginning of verse 9 in just a minute. And let's talk about a visitor that comes in the building here. First time they've ever come. I don't know if they saw the sign, decided to come in. Maybe by personal invitation. Maybe they're just walking down the street. Maybe they're just driving through town. I don't know what the reason would be for them to come. But when they do come in, would there be the possibility that either one of these seven could be witnessed by them? somebody in the world, I would say. If so, then that's a good indication and a good sign that we're working on the transformation and the identity that we have that is different than the people of the world. Because the comments have been made to me in the congregations that I've been associated with, specifically the one where we are, there's something different about what you're doing compared to what I've seen before. There's something different, something 
that I've never heard before. And as a result of all those comments that are made and the witnessing of that, that is your part in bringing about an understanding of what it means to be transformed, of which they've never, never seen before. Now, they may think it's weird and unusual, but the more that it's practiced and the more they see it, the more they're going to value the fact that they could be transformed by the mercies of God just like you and I are. One of the most difficult things, and, I, and I'm going to make a reference here to the class that, I, that Diane and I attended with the young people, uh, the middle school and high school class at Reagan and Stephanie's house on Saturday night. I let them read this list, verse 9 through verse 21, and I asked them the question. I said, which one of these, which one of these, and you could use every one of them, which one of these do you believe you would like to see demonstrated the most above all of them and ask them why. So let's look at the first one where he says here in this text, he says, let's, let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be genuine. And that was one of the comments that was made. I'd rather see this one. And if you, if you sit there and you think about it just a minute, about how convoluted the idea of love has become, then it makes sense how it is that there should be a true, genuine, pure demonstration of this without hypocrisy. So that just indicates to you that there are people out here who are faking it. I mean, they are casting some kind of cloak or veneer or cover over what they're really doing and what they really feel by just telling you, I love you. It's so fake and so superficial. And as a result of this, Paul is saying, don't let any of that superficial and fake love ooze out of you. Not one. Because here's what we've got a problem with. In 1 John chapter 4, in verse 20, he says, if a man says... I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. And he that loves not his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he hath not seen. This is the commandment which you have from him, that he who loves God loves his brother also. So you've got the hypocrisy in verse 20, but you've got the genuine part in verse 21. So to say what Paul says here is... A very true thing. So let, let me just look at it from the standpoint of what would be going on possibly, and I cannot surmise everything about this, but let's say there were Jews out there that said they loved other Jews. And there's this Gentile that comes along, and he realizes because he works around and maybe has been associated with this person as a Jew somewhere in the past, and he says, he's a fake. He is an absolute fake. Because I know he doesn't like this man. I know he doesn't love him, even though he says he does. For the Gentile, they're looking for something genuine. For the Jew, he's not demonstrating it, so therefore we've got a convoluted, disoriented world. They don't know what love is. Therefore, to let love be without hypocrisy is a matter of making this love, as 1 Timothy chapter 1, 5 says, out of a pure heart. Letting it be demonstrated so other people will know exactly what love is. 
And as Paul was talking about in his list of characteristics of love in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6, he says, love rejoices with the truth. Truth is demonstrated with love. You can't say, I love the brethren, hate your spouse. Can't say, I love my spouse, hate the brethren. I mean, we're, we're having conflicting ideas of what love's all about. But the end of the charge is this. Therefore, don't let love be puffed up with something artificial. But then he goes on there. He goes further and he says, okay, let's do this. Let's abhor that which is evil and cleave to that which is good. And when you look at this, this is pretty straightforward. I mean, there's, you can't really mess this up, can you? Only if, only if you're trying to make one be the other. Like the book of Isaiah 5 talked about. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, when the people of Judah were delivered, this message was delivered to them, there's an interesting thing that happened in their life, and that is they were trying to call evil good, verse 20, and good evil. That put darkness for light and light for darkness. That put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And there are people today in our counterculture, transculture, are taking good and making it evil. And taking evil and making it good. And that just kind of disorients people's mind. Well, I've lived by this neighbor for a long time, and and he goes to church, and, and their family is wonderful, and all of a sudden you're telling me that, oh, man, they're evil? What is there about them that's evil? I mean, they're honest working people, and they're valuable folks. You're telling me they're evil? And then they talk about the evil is good. Yeah, I know the circumstances in their life are not the best, I know it's tough for them. I, you know, if I was them, I'd go out and steal something too. I mean, it, we're looking at the evil and the false as if that's good. We just don't make evil evil, and we don't become the ones who make good good. It's all by definition of what God says is good because you go back to the book of Romans chapter 12, verse 2, you're proving what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Not what I say is good, it's what God says is good. Now, if we, if we want to try to hold on to both at the same time, we're going to have a hard time, according to Matthew six twenty four, because you're going to hate the one, love the other, hold the one, despise the other. You can't serve both at the same time. You can't hold them both, one in one hand, one in the other, and say, I can do this, I can juggle this act. It's like oil and water, it doesn't mix. No more than it does in the minds of God. According to what is stated in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says something in verse 21 by saying, Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Now, if you, if you look at the very first part of the statement in verse 21, prove all things, do you think that that would mean that the idea of good and evil is kind of clouded and you, and you really don't know or is the prove all things give you a very clear understanding that there's a very good possibility that a distinction between good and evil can be made? Especially when he says, hold fast that which is good. And especially when you get to verse 21, abstain from every form of evil. 
That may be why prove all things is there. Hold fast that which is good and abstain from every appearance of evil. Romans chapter 12, verse 9, abhor that which is evil and cleave that which is good. It makes perfect sense why that would be there. If we want to try to hold on to both at the same time, Proverb writer had something to say about this in Proverbs seventeen fifteen. He says it this way. He that justifies the wicked and he that condemns the righteous, both of them are like an abomination to Job. Justify the wicked, condemn the righteous, both of them are like as an abomination to Job. But let's go further. Let's talk about this one. Let's talk about love one another. The way he states it here, and love the brethren, be tenderly affectionate one to another, and honor preferring one another. I don't have all of that stated here upon the overhead, but the summation of verse 10 is we need to be the people who will have this brotherly affection for one another. It's very, it's, it's very much the idea that we're family. We're family. And as a result of being family, we're the people as fellow family members, believers in the church, transformed individuals, we show affection toward one another to demonstrate the love that was shown to us. And a statement that was looked at earlier in the book of 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 to verse 18, goes on further to say, in verse 22, much rather those members of the body which seem to be more feeble or necessary, and those parts of the body which we think to be less honorable, we need to bestow more abundant honor and our uncomely parts have more comeliness, whereas our comely parts have no need, but God tempered the body together, giving more abundant honor to that part which lacked, so that there will be no schism in the body, that the members should have the same care one for another. Very much demonstrates the phrase of which he mentions here, Romans chapter 12, show this affection. Show this honor. In other words, it should be very well witnessed in my life and in yours that the people that we prefer to be around and we honor the most are the people that are definitely believers as we are. Definitely we elevate those people to whom we're closest. And hopefully for the transformed individual, he or she will pick the Christian as the one they want to be with first. And that was, that was kind of laid out for us before the Romans ever knew it, before the book of Romans was ever written. When Jesus, in the book of John, the 13th chapter, verse 34, was talking to people about how it would be that other people would know his disciples, he said, I'll give a new commandment to you that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, so also love one another. And he says, by this... By that demonstration of love, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. And again, it goes back to this idea of what we're looking at. If there's a disoriented world out there that doesn't know what family love is like, and especially a spiritual family that should be loving one another's like, if they don't, of all they've heard and all they've witnessed is this fight, this fight, this division, this division then they've got this very skewed understanding of what love of the brethren is all like. They've heard it all their life, but yet there's nothing that really shows them what this is supposed to be. 
hopefully, until they walk in the doors of this building with these people. And then they know exactly what Jesus was referring to. For this is such a selfless, generous group of people who have the mindset of Philippians chapter 2 where if there's any joy, if there's any consolation of love, and if there's any unity among us, it's because these people look out to the things of others. And right after that he says, have this mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. It's because these people behave the way the transformed people behave. But let's go to this one. This is, this is one that's kind, of, oops, this, this kind of put all together here. By saying this in verse 11, In diligence not slothful, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Have you ever met an effervescent Christian? A very zealous, boiling over, enthusiastic child of God. The New American Standard renders this by saying, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. New International Version says it this way, never be lacking in zeal, but keeping your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. The English Standard Version you might have says, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. You might be, you're passionately involved, you're keeping the spiritual life boiling, an attitude that never does fade. It's just a practice that just keeps going and going and going. It's a, it's a behavior that never loses its appeal. It, we're, we're so involved in this work of the Lord, it just never, ever stops with us. We love doing this because this is the means of a transformed individual. This is their identity, and everybody knows them because of this. They're always working for the Lord. And you don't have to call it elder, deacon, preacher, teacher. You call it Christian. And when you call it Christian, they're just like this. And it attacks all this negative attitude that can't. We can. And won't with will. And don't with do. It puts all those in its proper perspective, this spirit, is totally opposite of laziness. So therefore, as a result of this, I think this one segment of this list is going to reduce and probably eliminate any possibility of boredom in the family of God. And all these anxious moments that people have takes all that away. Because you're so working, so well working in the family of God, you don't have time to worry about anything or afraid of anything. Or doubt anything. You're working because God asked you to do it. And he's looking at this and saying, you know, this is totally opposite of predestination. It is. It's totally opposite of predestination. Predestination would say, don't worry about it. You're picked out. You're selected. You don't have to worry about anything. You just move on through life however you want to go. But this takes that away. It's a matter of not being one that thinks, I'm there. But it's not earned. We're not doing this to earn anything. I mean, this, this, this matter of what he says here, in diligence, not slothful, fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, does not remove mercy. 
It does not remove love. It does not remove grace. It does not remove obedience. It does not stop the goodness of God. It is because of the mercies of God that a person would do this. It, it, very similar words in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 58. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable. Steadfast, immovable, constantly. Always abounding, he says, in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain the Lord. I mean, this is a continuous effort. Whatever you do, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 31, whatever you do in eating or drinking, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God with energy, with passion, with zeal, with desire, with anticipation, with hope of going to heaven. And when you do what you do, we could, we could lo- go over and read Ephesians chapter 5, chapter 6, where he says the things that you're doing, whether you're a parent, you're a child, you're a, work, you're a slave, you're a master, you're a boss, you're a pl- whoever it may be, one of the things that was stated in Colossians chapter 3 was so significant, where he said in verse 23, whatever you do, Work heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. Knowing that from the Lord you shall receive the recompense of the inheritance, you serve the Lord Jesus. You serve Jesus Christ. You be the one that's diligent, and you realize how serving Christ is the highest privilege known to man. That's the highest privilege. Okay, let's stop right here. Let's stop right here. We'll talk about the rest of them a little bit tomorrow night and talk more about this. But when you think about what goes on here, I want you to, I hope you can see one thing, well, no, two things. One is that self is just removed from the picture. And let me, I like, let me give you an example of that real quick like in the book of romans chapter 12 to do all these things he says you come out away from you and you do for others but you will notice what takes place in romans chapter 16 i thought this is a very significant thing where he says he says i beseech you brethren that the same thing he said in romans 12 verse 1 i beseech you brethren mark them that cause the division and occasion of stumbling contrary to the doctrine which you learn and turn away from them there's somebody out there that's acting more conformed to the world than they are transformed. says, they are such as serve not our Lord Jesus, but their own belly. And by their smooth and fair speech, they deceive the hearts of the innocent. You see the direction in which this person's going? It's not transformed by the renewing of, his, of the mind, but it's conforming to the world, and just like the world, they're serving their own belly. They're wanting to do everything that suits them and their pleasure and their word and what makes them feel good. You don't gain anything in the family of God like that. You don't especially bring it to the point of growing. Living in a way which makes God extremely valuable is the life of the transformed person. And these things that we've discussed tonight are part of the identity of the transformed. Which, as I stated before, is, is it, in many instances, and I would say totally different than everything that you will see in the world. Everything you'll see. 
You might see some similarities like a man like Cornelius would do. Or maybe Lydia would do. She'd go pray. She'd go out and pray by the seashore. Or you would see people do things like the eunuch would do. He'd be very forward and loyal to his work. You might see those people do those things. But when all those people like the eunuch and the jailer and Lydia and about those 3,000, all those people were saved and converted, transformation, radical changes took place in their life. The direction in which their life took, all because of God's mercy and inviting them to be identified as a transformed person. And the same thing can happen to you as to me as well. Having believed in Jesus as the Christ, would you not repent? And I'm not saying you've got just a few things to do. Take this off, add this one on. Or maybe you've got one, add a little bit more. I'm talking about radical changes. Because as Luke 13, 3 says, unless you repent, you'll perish. Confess in the name of Jesus the Christ, who brings you by the mercies of God into his kingdom and your obedience and baptism. Where all things are washed away, like Romans 6 was talking about. Old's crucified, and now this new man is acquired. Not only will you see the difference, but the rest of the people in the world will witness it in you too. And there will be your calling to be a disciple of Jesus. Do what's right. Well, together we sing this song. Oh, Jesus.